0: Hi, good afternoon, pleasure to uh, be with you this afternoon, I am just returning, Hotfoot as you know, from the other place, uh, where they told me to leave, Finished preaching and Richard said, you have to go, Uh, and it took me a while to realise it was just a logistics thing, not a personal thing, you know. But we had a good time, had a good time this morning and it's um, really, really nice to be back with you and to be with you looking at something which is um, a real um, opportunity, I think, as well as responsibility for the church here and now to trace its legacy um, And to be reminded of the journey we have made. It's a little bit like, you know, kind of a who do you think you are kind of process. To go back to the Apostles' Creed and to remind ourselves of the Christian foundation of our faith is a really important thing to do. And I want to commend the leadership of uh, this uh, church for taking us, taking you back over that journey. You know, there was a period in uh, sort of new church life where you got the impression that churches who'd sprung up in the 60s and 70s with the move of the Holy Spirit um, thought that the church began in 1960, 62 or 3, with the charismatic renewal. And kind of forgot that we have a long legacy indeed the holy catholic church small c and so it's, it's just good and I was saying in the first session this morning um, that about 20, maybe 30 years ago now I was talking with a group of charismatic leaders and in those days frankly there was a real sense of distance between who we are as Pentecostals and charismatics and sort of Anglican and you know, Methodists and Baptists the people who've been around for a long time and we weren't quite sure about whether they were gonna live or exist for another 20 or 30 years. And there was a real sense of pride and almost superiority, sometimes bordering on arrogance, to be honest, with new church life. Um, and a good friend of mine said to us in a little meeting, he said, he said um, don't worry about it, he said, sooner or later, we all go back to mother. And the Apostles' Creed takes us back to the foundation takes us back to mother if you like the foundation of the life of the church i am tasked with the final of a series as you've just heard and my theme is looking at hope i believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting amen hope um and I think I want to begin by reminding us of something which is basic but quite important. And that is the, the gift of God to humankind is love. The gift of God to humankind is hope. Whether you're a Christian or not, you need hope if you've come today because somebody from this church brought you, you don't really have any particular commitment to Christian faith. You can't live without hope. Whether you're a teenager trying to work through a broken relationship at 17 or 15 and the girl of your dreams didn't respond to your last text you need a touch of hope. You just need the idea that tomorrow is coming and you're going to be okay tomorrow. Hope is really the gift of the possibility of tomorrow. When it goes missing, life is under threat. And so God has given to humankind the potential to hope. Those of you who may have seen the Shawshank Redemption, that fantastic classic film, you might remember that line which read... Said to Andy, Hope is a very dangerous thing. It is. Hope can make you aspire to great things, Christian or not. Hope can make you do disastrous things. If you actually believe that you're going to be in heaven with virgins at your disposal, if you do an act of atrocity and extremism now, hope can be very dangerous. But it still has that way of exerting its energy and influence on us in the now to say, Tomorrow means I can act in a certain way today. It sustains the possibility of life. So years ago, I was um, before I was working with the Evangelical Alliance as its director. You just heard, you know, I had a proper job. I was I was a probation officer for about ten years in London. One of my clients was a notorious gentleman called Michael Fagan. Uh, not from the musical, but Michael Fagan was the guy in the 1980s who broke into the Queen's bedroom before he was apprehended. And so, as a result of that offence, I became his probation officer. Anyway, Michael was an interesting guy; never failed to, um, yeah, to keep me busy. And one day he came in the office wearing a huge, huge cross. I said, oh, Michael, you're wearing a cross. He said, yeah, yeah, I've become a Christian. I said, right. So I said, well, how do you, you know, how do you know you're a Christian? He said, well, he said, it's very difficult, very tricky. He said, um, I just wear me cross and I hope for the best. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm not sure King's Church would go with that. Uh, so so we're not kind of talking about that sort of hope for the best, hope. Uh, but you need that. Sense of there is tomorrow. And a part of the role of the church is to pass that on. If you ever get a chance to look at Viktor Frankl's work, he was a psychologist who looked at survivors of Auschwitz, survivors of the concentration camps under Nazism. One of the things he noted was that the difference between those who survived and those who did not, often, not the only reason, was the absence or the presence of hope. And he worked out that those who could somehow sustain a sense of hope, sustain the thought of life beyond the the camps, stood a better chance of survival. Those who gave up, those who lost the past and who lost the sense of the future were much more susceptible to dying apart from the gas chambers themselves. So his point was, in the absence of hope, life expectancy for human beings can be compromised or even eroded. And a part of the Christian calling is to generate, to sustain, to supplement hope. We are agents of hope. For people of all faiths or none. That's a part of our calling. 2005, a year after the 2004 tsunami, I went with a Christian agency to southern India to see the work they had done over the past and previous 12 months in response to the disaster of that incredible crisis. And I saw a number of scenes which were striking. They're still vivid in my brain today. One of them was a woman and her children with a cow under a tree. We took the photograph: woman, cow, children on the tree. Uh, the other snapshot was of a village where their um, farms had been devastated by the ocean salt—the salt water from the ocean—and over the previous 12 months they had been able to desalinate uh, some of the soil. And one of the tools they had available to themselves to do that was this shiny red tractor. I remember seeing this shiny red tractor in the middle of a field with all these villagers, Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims and uh, Christians, gathering around to celebrate the red tractor. And I thought. That's a snapshot of hope. You know what the king's table is? It's a snapshot of hope. You know, you put your money in the offering just a while ago, if you did. It's hope. You're contributing. You know, we're not goody two shoes. We're not doing social work. We are sustaining hope. We're saying to people who are vulnerable, the young man under 25 who thinks there is no tomorrow and he wants to end his life, we're talking to the people who are stressed out and needing food from a food bank. We're talking to the prisoner who's been incarcerated for the third or fourth time, to the teenager who is trapped on the repetition of criminal behavior because that's all he sees around him. His mates were being expensive trainers and he has come to value himself by how much his trainers cost. We're trying to say to them, no, hope goes beyond that. When we reach out to the community as agents of hope, we are sustaining God's gift to humanity. Eddie was another one of my probation guys. Eddie must have been 17 when I was his probation officer many moons ago. I remember Eddie coming in my office once, looking like a Christmas tree He was up to his waist in gold, fur coat, silk shirt, leather shoes. I tell you what, at any one time, Eddie would have been valued like 3,000 pounds. He thought my salary was a joke. Um, And I said to him once, Eddie, why, why do you have all this gear, man? because the whole of life for him was about stealing enough to buy the gear that was his hope horizon i said why do you why do you all this stuff and he said to me if i don't have my stuff i'm nothing i was a young black guy i was just a little older than him the only difference between us across the table was i'd met jesus frankly he said if i don't have my stuff i'm nothing And I thought, what a lack of hope. What a lack of hope. That for Eddie, what he was wearing was his horizon. Only trips he'd made was up to Birmingham, possibly to Manchester to sell the merchandise. Never had a passport, never gone anywhere. No horizon. Listen, when we reach out, that's why you should put stuff in the offering, even if you're not a Christian. When we reach out, that's that's my version, not yours again. When we reach out to minister, we are being agents of hope. When you come alongside somebody over a cup of coffee to talk about the possibility of tomorrow. To say to somebody, don't harm yourself or think again before you do that. We are sustaining hope. It's God's gift for humankind. And you don't have to be a Christian in order to experience God's commitment to you to experience hope. That's why we are here. But it's another reason why we're here, because Christian hope does have a different quality. There is a USP about the Christian faith. There is something about it which marks it off from this kind of generic hope I'm speaking about. And there are five reasons I want to discuss for the next couple of hours or so. The first is, I don't know why people laugh when I say that. They just don't take me seriously. So, uh, and the doors are locked, by the way. Okay. So the first is that our hope is rooted in eschatology. The, the last things, the future events. Reality beyond this world. Future hope. And that is really awesome. Because it is this future hope which fuels us to deal with the current realities we are handling. If you don't have that kind of future hope, you become victim to what is happening to you today. And so the constant appeal of the Christian faith is that our circumstances, whatever they are now, physical illness, the operation next week, the divorce, the, the son or daughter who just won't do the right thing, the disappointment with the examination results. All of those things, important though they are, the bankruptcy, all of these things which are important, the things people say about you and want to do to you, the way we deal with systemic injustice and violence, the way we Knife crime and street crime and police brutality and everything in between. The way we walk on the ward, when we know we're on the resource and on the staff. The way we treat each individual patient as a doctor. All of that is informed by a sense of S eschatological context of who eternal tomorrow. That all of this is put in the context of who we are, where we're going, the possibility that God's future has broken into our present, and therefore we become agents of hope. We don't panic at ever crisis. Yes, we know fear. Yes, we know uncertainty. Yes, we are sometimes stressed out by the stuff around us. And the stuff inside us. But what sustains us. What enables us to be a cut above the rest. Not superior but different. Is that we have a sense of hope. A sense of calm. A sense of stability. A sense of endurance. That people can lean on us. This is Paul in the book of Acts. When he's on a ship. And the ship is about to be shipwrecked. And everybody is panicking. And he steps out. He says, the God whom I serve and before whom I stand says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be alright. Yep, some thieves will get broken. Some people may lose their lives. Uh, you know, some people may have a hardship. But we will be okay. You bring that to the party. Because we have sustained future hope. You need that if you're dealing with injustice. A lot of my work has been about responding to injustice. And I see the difference between people who have this sense of eschatological hope and those who don't. The ones who don't often tend to be really intense about justice. Really screwed up about justice. You can't say anything to them. You can say good morning they tell you about the pain of the world. Yeah, we can have the same intensity, the same concerns, but have a sense of God's activity in a busy world. So, at this rate, in making all of my five points, we will be here for two hours, so I'll go on to my second point, which is, Christian hope is rooted in, In truths about God. That's why we've been doing this series. That's why the Christian faith, the communion of saints, has been durable. 2,000 years later, we're saying basically the same words as 2,000 years ago. Where else are you going to find that? Not many places. And this is because our hope is resident and embedded in the truths about God. I believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son and in the Holy Spirit. So our faith doesn't wobble about. Yes, it's challenged. Yes, there are times I am not sure about certain things. Yep, I struggle to ensure that I have Christian beliefs, which are consistent with the 21st century. How do I respond to issues around human sexuality or the development of technology? And sometimes I find myself wrestling to ensure that I have understood my Bible in such a way that I can still hold some traditional views and yet be humane and yet be respectful of everyone's dignity. But my faith sits on the bedrock of God I believe in. God, I believe in Jesus. So my Christian hope doesn't bob around on the ocean because I have no fixed points. My Christian faith and my hope settles for the reality that God is a just God, that Jesus' son is righteous. And these ideas about God, these ideas of some eternal tells me that I'm a part of some eternal truth. Here is the interesting thing for me. When we said those words from the creed, you're actually responding to pre-doctrinal statements. That's what I love about them. These statements, which came out in the earliest period of the Christian uh, church, were statements made Two or three or four hundred years before you had, if you like, systematic theology developing. Councils and bishops and theologians emerging to harden up Christology and theology ideas about God or future things. These are early statements, you see. And they're early statements designed to respond to some wrong beliefs about the faith. Gnosticism that materiality, material, the material world is unimportant. They're saying, No, 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 no. That's why we believe in the bodily resurrection. I believe in the resurrection of the body was another way of responding to the heresy which says material reality is unimportant. You see? When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't really Jesus, it was a kind of a shadow of Jesus, because the material Jesus couldn't die. Or the holy Jesus, the divine Jesus, couldn't die. Therefore, it wasn't a real Jesus. No, 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 we don't say that. We're saying the real bodily Jesus, truly human, truly divine, died. So the Nicene Creed, which came after, and the Apostles' Creed, which came earlier, which we recited just now, are pre-doctrinal statements responding to heresy, wrong ideas about the faith, but more importantly, they became statements of worship, statements of liturgy, statements of adoration. That's important to me. Because it means you can have some fixed beliefs about your faith, but you don't have to be nasty about it. Your truth which you believe should be a force for worship, for adoration, for fellowship. And so we don't become known for what we're against. We become known for what we believe. That's what they were doing back then. I believe, not I'm against. I believe, not I hate you. I believe, not I don't do whatever. That's a challenge for the church. How do you harness truth and make it positive statements? You may have noticed I get slightly excited about that idea. But we all have our problems. <laughs> and this challenge comes home to us. We believe, and we are blessed in the process. All right, so here's my third thing. Christian hope is rooted in people and places. I believed he suffered under Pontius Pilate. What a name. Pontius Pilate. Sounds like somebody doing stretches or something. Pontius Pilate. No. Anyway, you dealt with that in the cross on the 2nd of June. Um, uh, Two thirds of the Bible is history. Did you know that? The first five books of the Bible. It is about God. It's about creation. But it's about history. Samuel. The book of Kings. Chronicles. Esther. Nehemiah. Ruth. All of those books. It's history. It's God saying, I have acted in human political history. I have acted in human economic depression. Egypt. I have acted in the middle I have and racism. The three Hebrew boys we call them and Daniel. I have acted in persecution. I have brought people from slavery and made them prime ministers of the greatest dynasty of their age. Joseph. So God roots our hope in human history. We're not away with the fairies. Ladies and gentlemen, and this is exemplified for me very powerfully in the very first prayer of the early church, the believer's prayer, it says in the NIV, in Acts chapter 4. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our Father David. Why do the heathens' nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord. Are you hearing Handel's Messiah screaming at you and against his anointed one? Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant. Now, Lord, this is the bit Pentecostals and Charismatics love. consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Can I have a rumble? Okay. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. Boldly. I love that bit. i tell you the bit I like almost as much. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, there he is again, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city. I love that. It's the first prayer of the church. And they're saying to God, God, uh, before we ask you for power and boldness, can we just give you a little bit of a history just to remind you that you have acted Within the political framework of our experience. We're going to invoke Pontius the Pilate instructor. Pontius Pilate and the people in this city. People and places come together. And in the book of Acts, there are more references to people and places than to miracles. Are miracles unimportant? No, they're really important. Are people and places important? Yes. Take them away from the scriptures. The whole thing collapses. So we've got a God who has given us hope. Because this hope is rooted in truths about himself. And our hope is predicated on eternal, an eternal tomorrow. That hope is rooted in people and places. It's rooted in community. My fourth point the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. You dealt with that on July the 7th. Tim Keller makes this really important point that it takes more faith to believe in the church than in God. Because very often, let's be honest, our experience of church is not always great, apart from this one, of course. But we believe In the communion of the saints. You know why? Because no one hopes alone. No one. You want to kill a person's hope? Lock them away. You want to kill a prisoner's hope? Put her in isolation. And watch her try not to talk to herself. After three or four weeks, we hope together, and our hope, briefly, is rooted in the Godhead itself. And the truth is that most people meet the church far earlier than they meet God. Here's my fifth and final and very long point Don't be afraid. Our hope is rooted in Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. 26th of May you looked at that. Jesus, human and divine. I was so glad that you didn't ask me to speak on that. Because that's really hard work. You have to prepare for that kind of thing, you know. You have to actually work and prepare for that sort of thing. Here's the thing though. This is an all or nothing faith. All the chips are out. And the equation is this if Christ isn't alive today, materially, not a ghost, if the real Jesus who walked the steps, the streets of Nazareth, died on a material and real cross, died physically and rose again to a new body, if that Jesus is not alive today, then your faith is a waste of time. That's what Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, 1 Corinthians 15, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If Jesus has not been raised physically and materially from death, all of this is a waste of space. Go home now. Although the doors are locked. <laughs> so, this is not a, mate- a, a metaphysical resurrection. It's not a philosophy about resurrection. This hope is not based on the idea that I believe in the resurrection. It's very specific. I believe in the resurrection of the body and of life eternal. Resurrection of the body is important. Because what is happening here is that material resurrection, physical resurrection is central to our hope. Lazarus was the prototype. Let me tell you what I mean. Jesus heard that Lazarus, his friend, was not well. He could have gone straight away. Heal him when he's sick. Stop the problem at source. He doesn't do that. He waits till the man is dead. And not only dead, literally falling apart he's decomposing so by the time Jesus gets to town or to the village rather his sisters say hey wait hang on wait you don't you don't want to come any closer because he does not smell good this is worse than a thousand nappies you want to stay away from this kind of smell and Jesus pushes forward everybody else backs away restores Lazarus to life what is happening here What is happening here is that Jesus deliberately waits for Lazarus to begin to decompose. And he's saying the power of the resurrection has to do with materiality, with physical reality, with a new body that's central to our hope. In the same way, then, that God raised Jesus from the dead, so he raises us from the dead. And that is the centrality of our hope. And this is a profound idea because there is an issue of continuity in knowing. So we don't die as humans. And wake up as angels. We don't die as human and wake up as fairies. We don't die as humans and wake up as unicorns. We die as people and we wake as renewed people. And the materiality of resurrection, the physicality of God exerting his power on our mortal bodies. And renewing it in such a way that it looks like the renewed body of Jesus is the final statement about God's ability to defy death itself. If you died as a human and woke up as a unicorn, if you died as a human or woke up as a fairy, God forbid, but it doesn't have the same power. You're a different thing. You're a different substance. You're a different species. There is no continuity in that. But the power of the resurrection the basis of your hope in the resurrection of the body is god's ability to bring life back to a deceased person that's why preachers are a bit nervous about what to say at the funeral of a non-christian person Because we're saying Jane hasn't gone on to be a fairy. Tom hasn't gone on to be a unicorn. He's going to be a different Tom. He's going to be a different Jane. And this point of departure is crucial. We return as Christians we will Knowing who we are, who we were and knowing each other better and knowing God better. And so our hope is a protest against the finality of material death. Paul is right then. He said, I stand on trial. Because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. It's really important. It's the conflict between judgment and joy. Right there. At that funeral service. Because of the importance of material afterlife. So Christian hope. Is about God's ability. To slay death. Because, you know, the only thing everybody does is to die. And so if Jesus has overcome death itself, there really is hope. Death isn't the last chance we get to have people say nice things about us. It's more fundamental than that. It's the realization that there really is the possibility of a long tomorrow. I wrote some years ago. Today lasts forever, the moon shines as the sun, the stars have lost their brilliance, the seasons have all gone. For in God there's no beginning, and tomorrow has no start, and the doorway to forever is hidden in your heart. Paul puts it this way in First Corinthians 15, oh, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, or grave, is... Your sting. This is Christian hope. This is Christian hope that God will restore, that God will resurrect, and that the final enemy of humanity, death itself, has been vanquished. And because that is a reality, there's a sense in which Christians become invincible in our faith. Not arrogant, just unstoppable in our faith. That's what sustained them in the Roman arenas in the first century when lions came at them or bears or they were put in front of professional soldiers and carved to pieces for entertainment. It was because they had a sense that hope sustain them beyond this life. And no, they weren't daydreamers. They weren't fanciful. They just knew that there was continuity between who they are now and that that same person renewed materially in a different life would wake up in the presence of Jesus. Daydreamers know people with hope. And you just can't kill that kind of hope. Oh, death. Where was your victory? O oh, death, o oh, grave, where is your sting? And this is why in hope we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen.